From the Moan Broadcast Center, it's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Libby Denkman, in for Larry Mantle. Our country is in the middle of a national reckoning, confronting institutional racism in our government, our schools, and especially our police. Coming up after the news, nearly two months since George Floyd's killing, leaders of the effort to defund the police in Los Angeles and reimagine community safety will be here for a roundtable. Dr. Melina Abdullah of Black Lives Matter LA and Pete White of Los Angeles Community Action Network. And they're joined by City Councilman Herb Wesson, who's introduced motions to replace LAPD with crisis response professionals on some 911 calls and find alternatives to police and traffic enforcement. Plus, Alex Vitale, Brooklyn College professor of sociology and author of The End of Policing. All coming up next on AirTalk. Welcome to 89.3 KBCC's Air Talk. I'm Libby Denkman filling in for Larry Mantle today. He's out this week on vacation. Thanks for being with us while Larry is away. Well, it's been just under two months since Minneapolis police killed George Floyd. When the world watched the final eight minutes and 46 seconds of Mr. Floyd's life, we witnessed law enforcement and officers sworn to serve and protect slowly suffocate a defenseless man seemingly in cold blood. It was just one act in a long history of police violence visited upon black communities. But the horror and outrage that followed was a tipping point. Cities across America have seen massive protests for racial justice and change. In Los Angeles, community groups have taken their calls to defund the LAPD to City Hall. And some elected leaders are responding with concrete policy steps. So what's going on in the movement to dismantle racist policing and reimagine community safety? And what is next? We have guests on the line, and we're going to be talking about this all hour. So I welcome your calls and emails and uh, joining the conversation with questions or uh, issues that you want to bring up. Meanwhile, I'm going to welcome Melina Abdullah to the show, professor of Pan-African Studies at Cal State L.A. and co-founder of the Los Angeles chapter of Black Lives Matter. Welcome, Dr. Abdullah. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having us, Libby. And Pete White is also on the line, founder and executive director of the Los Angeles Community Action Network. And it's a community organization that works on anti-poverty issues here in Los Angeles. Welcome, Pete. Thank you for joining the show again. Thank you for having us, Libby. So we also are, uh, have on the line uh, Councilmember Herb Wesson, Los Angeles City Councilmember, who is representing the 10th Council District, longtime council president as well, and the uh, uh, member that has introduced uh, many of these measures that we're going to be talking about today. So thank you, Councilmember, for being on the show, being on AirTalk. Good morning, and it's a pleasure to be with you this morning, and hey, everybody. Hello. Thanks again. So before we dive in, because we had a historic passing last week, uh, I did want to kind of give a chance to some of our guests to share their reflections on the passing of Congressman John Lewis, who died on Friday, and uh, obviously a a giant in the space of civil rights and protest and and affecting change in racial justice. Uh, Melina Abdullah, is there anything that you can uh, briefly reflect upon in terms of the legacy of John Lewis? 
Yeah, I think that all of us are summoning, you know, the great, tremendous work of John Lewis into our work. We're summoning his spirit into the space that we occupy. Um, and we're remembering that John Lewis was one of those visionary leaders who said, you know, this false um, difference that's uh, created, this, this false dichotomy between um, Black Lives Matter and the civil rights movement absolutely has to be pushed back against. And so in 2017, we actually had an opportunity to spend a day and a half with Congressman Lewis, who visited the L.A. chapter of Black Lives Matter. And one of the things that he said around respectability politics in particular, remember John Lewis is also the person who um, talked about the need to create good trouble, right? And one of the things that he pushed back against was the idea that the shutdowns and the disruptions that we do was somehow a departure from earlier black freedom struggles. And what he said is, what did you think? What did they think happened with the march on Edmund Pettus Bridge as they're sitting here, you know, kind of blasting Black Lives Matter for disrupting traffic and disrupting um, the flow of capital? That's exactly what we did during the civil rights movement. And so he said to us, keep going, keep doing the work. Don't be deterred by those who say things like we agree with the message, but not the tactics. And one of the things he said to me personally is that, you know, if we don't disrupt um, these systems, then there's no need for them to listen to us. And mm. he um, often said that they use the term nonviolence, but they're missing the second half of it, that the tactic that they used was nonviolent direct action. Yeah. And Malia Abdullah, one second while I get Pete White in on this conversation as well, because uh, I was struck reading the uh, public opinion research from even the March on Washington in the 60s which we think of this, you know, amazing uh, moment in the country waking up to civil rights and the injustices against black people. But at the time, it was viewed very negatively by uh, folks who responded to public opinion polls. Pete White with L.A. Can, um, your reflections on the work by Congressman John Lewis and what it means for what's going on today. Yes, I, I would just first say rest in power uh, as Congressman John Lewis joins the ancestors. As freedom rider, uh, John Lewis joins the ancestors, right? I think, I think what comes to mind for me when I think about the words of John Lewis, where he says, to those who have said, be patient and wait, we have long said that we cannot be patient. We do not want to wait for our freedom gradually but we want to be free now, right? And this follows the same thread of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1964, which in which he would repeat from his letter from a Birmingham jail when he says, wait for the Negro means never. And so what I would like to hold and carry and uplift is this message of let's push for freedom, let's push for freedom. We can no longer wait for freedom. That's Pete White with LA Community Action Network. And Councilmember Wesson, anything to add to these reflections about John Lewis? Well, you know, he, other than him being a very inspirational individual, what I think about during these times is that, you know, this moment that we're in right now, 
that, you know, Mr. Pete White and Lord knows Dr. Molina and her folk have brought us to this moment. This was John Lewis's type of moment. He lived for this. This is the greatest opportunity in the modern era of this country for change. And we cannot drop the ball. We cannot fumble this. We, we owe it not only to, to him and some of our other leaders, but we owe it to ourselves and our children and our, our grandchildren. So he's looking down on us right now, rooting on us to succeed. And in my opinion, we must win this day. Councilmember Herb Wesson, the Los Angeles City Council member, putting forward several motions that we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Dr. Melina Abdullah with Black Lives Matter, you have been in this work for years. I mean, Black Lives Matter was founded in 2013 and L.A. was one of the first chapters and one of the largest and most organized chapters. Uh, And at the time, uh, it was in response to George Zimmerman being acquitted for the killing of Trayvon Martin. I think what happens when a moment like what we're seeing today occurs, a movement just you know blows up and is is huge and hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets. Folks forget that there are long hours of organizing, advocacy and effort that goes into laying this groundwork. Can you highlight some of the work that you've been doing for years now that has made what has occurred in the last two months in L.A. possible? Sure. So on July 13th, 2013, Black Lives Matter was born first as um, kind of an intuitive organizing effort. We took to the streets um, demanding justice in the name of Trayvon Martin. And from there, we began to build. We began to um, step into what I think is our sacred duty to struggle forward and pick up the mantle of black freedom struggle. Um, we began by doing work around police accountability, um, doing work to demand justice in the name of Ezel Ford here in Los Angeles, um, but also remembering that these systems were designed to produce these outcomes. And so how do we reimagine public safety? And that's kind of some of the work we're now um, back to. It's become kind of a clarion call of the moment, right? How do we think about a public safety, um, a plan for public safety that really centers meeting the needs of people that really centers um, uh, transformative justice, um, that centers accountability. Um, So we've been for years demanding that um, the district attorney, Jackie Lacey, prosecute police who kill our people. We've been demanding an end to gang databases, which we just won. Um, We've been demanding that police um, be fired um, and held accountable for um, the injustices and that resources, um, taxpayer resources, be poured into um, the kinds of radical imaginings that come from places like Los Angeles Community Action Network. And so that's the work we've been doing for many years, um, which also centers on reminding black people and those who say that they love black people of our own power and our own ability to not just reform the world that we live in, but to transform it. 
Pete White is on the line with us as well from L.A. Can uh, before there were thousands of people in the streets, of course, there were dozens and, and hundreds of people showing up to organize and some of that work that Melina just highlighted. Can you talk about what you and, and L.A. Can have been doing for decades now in L.A. that has really laid groundwork for today? Yeah, I, I most definitely can do that. I mean, when we think about the work of organizing and um, creating new North Stars, we know that we stand and sit and hold up many shoulders that came before us. And so a lot of the work that LA Can has done, LA Can has been around since 1994 and became a, a recognized organization in 1999. But we stood on the shoulders of folks like Michael Zinzen and the, the Coalition Against Police Abuse, right? We stood on the shoulders uh, of folks like the, the the moms on welfare who was pushing for affordable housing development in communities all across Los Angeles, right? Um, knowing that without housing or without, um, yes, without housing, it's almost impossible to build power, right? And so for a number of years, we have definitely targeted the ways in which organizing abandonment has stripped resources out of our communities and left us with no options other than or left the government with only the option to continue to incarcerate and criminalize. It's always been crazy to us that after the process of deindustrialization, the response from government was not to create more jobs, but was to build prisons, right? After the federal government continued to defund affordable housing, right, through HUD, instead of building uh, more local ways to build housing, government built cages, right? And so for us, we've always been on this track of really interrogating the ways in which city budgets, because budgets really um, demonstrate the values of the cities or the values of those in power, ways in which we could reallocate resources to things that really make us safe. And, and Pete White, with, yes, with LA Can, I, I just want to transition into that idea, the people's budget that has been something that uh, occurred, I think, kind of kismet at the same time uh, or just was percolating before uh, this horrible tragedy, uh, the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Um, but the the people's budget effort, which uh, LA Can is a part of, Black Lives Matter really spearheaded, that's getting to what you're talking about, right? The reallocation of resources and looking at ways to strengthen the community uh, by investing in programs and, and care, not not police. Am I correct in that, uh, Mr. White? Oh, I mean, you're absolutely correct. Like, in short, it's this. Um, for more than a decade, we've redefined public safety. And so redefining public safety, moving it away from this idea that jails and surveillance and more police actually keep us safe when crime continues to plummet, right? In the same way that there's social determinants to health or of health, there are also social determinants of safety. And those social determinants are jobs and education and housing and good food, all of the things that we should be investing in. And so the People's Budget LA is a redressing of this idea that public safety is anything other 
than housing and jobs and education and things that, in fact, keep us all safe. And it's a a plan that was developed, again, with Black Lives Matter at the head and with many community groups contributing. And it looks at building up programs that are alternatives to community safety, like conflict resolution, uh, domestic violence, uh, counseling, things like that, and then also mental health, housing, all these things that are alternatives, again, to developing a safe community that don't involve armed police. And I want to get to that after the break with Councilmember Herb Wesson, because he uh, was instrumental in getting the people's budget in front of the city council, which also then became uh, uh, something that sparked policy that was introduced at the city. So we'll be back in just one minute with Councilmember Herb Wesson. Melina Abdullah with Black Lives Matter LA is on the line. Also, Pete White with LA Community Action Network. Back in one minute, I'm Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle. Air Talk on KPCC. Libby Denkman here for Larry Mantle. We're talking with activists about what protests around reimagined community safety and defunding the police have achieved so far and what is next. Melina Abdullah with Black Lives Matter is here. Also Pete White with LA Community Action Network. Turning to Councilmember Herb Wesson, how did the uh, invitation come together to have the people's budget organizers, including Dr. Abdullah, uh, David Turner, researcher with Black Lives Matter and, and several other uh, organizers, how did the invitation come together to bring them before the council? And what impact did their presentation of this alternative mode of spending, this alternative plan of spending public resources on community uh, programs and education and health. What impact did that have on yourself and the council? Well, you know, I'm proud to say that I've had a relationship with uh, Dr. Molina for, you know, a long time. I've watched her children grow. Uh, Pete White uh, is a person that I have the highest respect for and have a relationship with him as well. And it was these relationships that uh, led to a conversation between Dr. Uh, uh, Abdullah, myself, and the current council president, uh, Nuri Martinez, to try to create a relationship there. And when people, uh, you know, trust each other, when people can uh, have a conversations with one another than anything is possible. So based on that respect, the council president believed it would be a good idea, and I supported that we invite uh, the uh, Black Lives Matter to come in and speak before the council in a long uh, fashion so that they could lay out plans and 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 their concerns and make suggestions and it was from this level of trust level of honesty that all of this uh, began to happen and what's happened so far has been 150 million dollars cut from the LAPD budget um you know there have been alternatives that you've helped introduce like armed police being replaced by 
professionals who are mental health professionals, conflict resolution people, uh, developing a plan to replace those armed police on 911 calls, and also uh, the idea to replace Los Angeles police on traffic enforcement, uh, finding other ways to enforce traffic laws other than armed police. Now, uh, Councilmember Wesson, the cut to the LAPD has happened. What's happening with those other efforts? Well, you know, for us, this is we're having a real conversation about reimagining public safety. And what does that actually mean? The a percentage of the one hundred and fifty million that was reduced from the uh, police budget has been put in a reserve so that we can use that money to begin to build uh, our thoughts where it relates to reimagining public safety. Last week, uh, Black Lives Matter had like a community planning session or a community input session where individuals were able to give their thoughts and give their recommendations and their suggestions. And all of that information is going to be passed on to the entire city council and we'll have a conversation and a debate as to what does reimagining public safety really mean and what can we do. I think in fairness to Dr. Molina and to all of the people that brought us to this moment, this moment of the greatest change in this nation, we've got to hear their recommendations and suggestions. However, you know, we have ideas on on our own. Mm. Like, I think that we need to focus on on uh, crisis response teams that deal with mental uh, health issues that that deal with individuals that are homeless or houseless. So I just see so much opportunity, and it's just a matter of us all coming together and trying to figure out, you know, what we move on first. Right. And I want to bring Dr. Abdullah in because we've talked about this uh, throughout this process of uh, the presentation of the idea to cut $150 million and then the passage and then these other proposals for alternative uh, policing uh, or, or alternatives to policing in the community. And you've said, you know, $150 million, it's a drop in the bucket. Are you uh, feeling uh, hopeful about these policy strategies that are have been put forward, especially the 911 calls and, and traffic enforcement alternatives. Absolutely. We're actually more hopeful around that shift than we are um, by the meager $150 million cut, which really represents the increase. So they increased the budget and then they decreased it by almost the same amount that they increased it high uh, in the first place. Uh, right. It was slated to be increased by $120 million about, and now the $150 million cut, it, it, it's uh, not much uh, different than just not including an increase in, in this budget. Sorry, go ahead. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But what is, uh, it, when we think about what reimagining public safety is, um, which is a term that's now been appropriated, but was coined by uh, Keila Sherrills out of Watts uh, many years ago. 
Um, when we talk about reimagining public safety, it's really a commonsensical approach, which is what Councilman Wesson has put forward with his motion that passed, right? The idea that you don't need armed police to respond to nonviolent calls. If there's a call about someone experiencing a mental health crisis, we should have mental health workers respond to that call. If there's a call about um, a young person who's not in school, we should have youth workers who can respond to that call. And so what we're looking at with these motions, with the traffic stop motion as well as the nonviolent call motion is really shifting away from the idea that police are the appropriate responders to every crisis. We know, in fact, that when we look at the data around 911 calls, more than 90% of the calls are not violent calls. And so we can begin to scale back, um, and really this is what defunding the police is really about, scale back our um, reliance on police. And we really believe that the real way to create public safety is absolutely what um, my brother Pete White just said, my brother from another mother, I don't want them to, folks to think we're really related. Right? <laughs> um, Pete White just said, and investing in the things that actually create safe communities. And so the motion that was courageously, and I do want to um, make sure that we talk about the courage of it, right, because there is a backlash. The, the motion that was courageously put forward by Herb Wesson and supported by Nuri Martinez and Marquise Harris-Dawson, um, among others, um, really does kind of do the work of reimagining or begin the work of reimagining. And then the last piece I'll say is just there's also a process question um, that's really important, that this is civic engagement. This is democracy. This is people engaging in um, radically reimagining what the world and what our city can look like. I heard Dr. Uh, Abdullah talk about co-opting and, and that that concept of reimagining community safety. And um, I want to just turn to Pete White briefly here to talk about the danger of uh, a movement at this point in the effort being co-opted or being slow walked, because I was listening to a council meeting recently that you called into, Mr. White, and you uh, uh, brought up these fears that some of the policies being put forward in city council, like this 911 alternative, uh, you know, it's a it's a motion that has passed to create the plan. Um, and, and you presented the idea that perhaps some of these, uh, these, these proposals are ways to either slow walk or there's a danger of uh, the movement being co-opted or slowed down um, as it is working its way through the system. Uh, your reaction to what's gone on and, and those fears? Oh, yeah. So <clears throat> those, fears, those fears are definitely warranted. Um, thanks for bringing up the point. And so what we, what we know um, is that if we allow process to dictate sort of the direction um, that we're traveling to this new North Star, we'll never get there, right? And so we have to, we have to be really, really clear um, about our intentions, about where we want to go and the types of resources that we need to get there. Um, I will say in this moment, leadership is necessary, right? And and real leadership, not leadership that shrinks in the shadows, but leadership that comes out to the community. Um, Herb Wesson has displayed that type of leadership, 
but we're not battling against Herb Weston. We're battling against a system and an institution that recalibrates itself just as quickly as a mayor would come out and and bend a knee and say Black Lives Matter. And so at the same time that we are seeing what feels like um, advance, there's also plays being made that threaten to move us back further, right? Um, so for us, even when we think about the $150 million, uh, Council, Council Member Herb Wesson, he knows that we know that is not enough, right? And that that is not a number that is going to satisfy the anxieties um, that we have about policing being used to solve all sorts of social, economic, political, and behavioral problems. And, right? and I want to, uh, Mr. White, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to get to kind of the concrete steps of the ways that you address those problems uh, in, in an alternative way and, and in not through armed police. But I wanted to give Councilmember Wesson uh, a, a quick second to jump in because I think that you're hearing those fears uh, that that Mr. White and, and Dr. Abdullah have raised about uh, the uh, movement uh, possibly being co-opted or being um, slowed down. And, and then also, you know, you look back at the history of city leadership and for so long, you know, mayors running for office, they're pledging to add officers. And that is something that was sort of required to be a politician in L.A. up until maybe this year to say you're going to uh, invest more in LAPD and get those officer numbers up over 10,000. Um, and, and Councilmember Wesson, I mean, you were city council president for for many years. When you were in leadership, uh, did the city have a rubber stamp for police spending? And are you rethinking the way in the past budgets were made? Well, I think that you know, I'm not going to focus in the past. I'm going to focus on the future. I think that in order for us to accomplish the things that we want to, which is to create a better space for all people, black people in particular, that there are things that we must do. Mr. White is right in his concerns, and so is Dr. Molina. I've been around the block lo- long enough to know how this system works, but I view that to all of our advanced Each one of us has a role to play in this new movement, this new uh, creation of, 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 of a better city of Los Angeles. So we know what to look for and we know how to move forward. Uh, there's this is bigger than politics. Politics be damned where it relates to this issue. This is the 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 the, the one moment where the stars are aligned perfectly for us to create a perfect positive storm for change. And I just think there are enough members on the council that recognize this. We know that 150 million is more symbolic than than and that it won't satisfy, but it does give us enough money to have the seed money that we need to begin reimagining public safety, to have concrete hearings that move quickly mm-hmm. where we can begin to look uh, at ways to implement real change. All right. Uh, it, unbelievably it, excited. Yeah. And I just hear you saying, and, and I just briefly, because we're going to have to go to break in 
just a second. But um, I hear you saying politics be damned. And I think that uh, all the activists are recognizing your bravery and putting forward these motions. Um, of course, it is a, a political season. You're running for the second district county supervisor's race. Just briefly, uh, your reaction to the idea that there are political motives behind the reason that you're stepping up right now. Now, you know, I don't care about my future. This is about the future of, of, of my kids and their kids and everybody's nieces and nephews. You know, if, if we're successful here at this moment, then, then I, I don't have to ever do anything else. There'll never be a moment like this for an elected official in the city of Los Angeles. And, and, and we're going to make this, we're going to really make this happen. I do believe that the time is right and we can put forth phenomenal change. Even law enforcement recognizes that there are a lot of responsibilities that we've given to them that maybe we should not have. And so now we're looking at a way to try to shift those responsibilities around to professionals uh, that are less expensive, that can go out, do the job that needs to be done. And in essence, the city will save money and I believe we'll be a better city for it. So it's kind of unfortunate in a way that this is a political season, but I think that people are focused on the actual prize and I'm excited, and I believe we're going to get this done. I know I'm understood do within my power. Yeah, Alex Vitali joins us as well into the conversation. A professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College, part of the City uh, University of New York system, and he's the author of several books. The latest, the one that's getting the most attention, is The End of Policing. Uh, Mr. Vitali, because you cover these issues nationally, uh, I'm curious what you're seeing in different cities and how they compare to L.A. For so long, that fallback conversation for city leaders has been, hey, if there's a problem with policing, it's more training that will improve things. It's not about dismantling a system that is, uh, according to activists, fundamentally broken. Um, Is that still the norm nationwide? And do you see that changing? I think there are a lot of similarities with L.A. across the country in the sense that there was this dominant narrative coming from from the police chiefs and the mayors. We're going to fix policing with some anti-bias training and some body cameras, uh, but that the community was organizing around this different vision of public safety, was preparing alternative budgets, but they were largely being passed over. They weren't being taken seriously. And what we've seen in the last couple of months is this profound rejection of the reformist approach to the problems of policing. No one on the streets is holding up signs calling for body cameras or more police community meetings. They want real investments. The problem is, is that what we're seeing so far is largely these kinds of symbolic movements of money and more hopefully pilot programs in places like Albuquerque and Milwaukee and San Francisco, you know, to take police out of certain areas of responsibility, like responding to mental health calls, dealing with people having a crisis around homelessness, trying to get police out of the schools, 
so these things are really moving forward in some concrete ways in a whole host of cities across the country. How about these, uh, you know, programs that uh, not just moving the money around, but really changing the response to uh, problems in the community, say, uh, you know, sending uh, conflict specialists or uh, working on um, uh, restorative justice initiatives. Um, Is this something that you're seeing gaining traction in other communities as well? Absolutely. And, you know, the, the taking money out of the police budgets is not just about we need the money. It's also taking out whole areas of responsibility where we think that policing is actually counterproductive to producing public safety and then building up these very specific targeted interventions instead. Now, we have a long way to go, but we do see cities, for instance, who've pledged to spend more money on community-based anti-violence initiatives to give communities resources to kind of deal with problems of domestic violence and youth violence and shootings outside of the criminal justice system by people who are closest to the problem. Mm -hmm. That's Alex Vitale, author of The End of Policing and professor of sociology at Brooklyn College. Herb Wesson, city council member, is on the line along with Dr. Melina Abdullah, Black Lives Matter LA, and Pete White of LA Community Action Network. We are talking about the policy changes that activists have achieved so far and what is next in the movement for reimagining community safety in Los Angeles. I'm Libby Denkman, back in one minute on AirTalk. Hey there, it's AirTalk. Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle today. And we have Herb Wesson, council member on the line. Melina Abdullah with Black Lives Matter LA. Pete White with LA Community Action Network. And Alex Vitale, author of The End of Policing, all talking about the achievements of the activism around reimagining community policing, defunding the police in LA and what's to come. I'm curious, Dr. Abdullah, if you can walk me through what your goals are as things move forward and more proposals are uh, on the table, when this transition period in your um, estimation of uh, moving us away from armed police and needing armed police is going on, uh, alternatives to incarceration, mental health care, education, all of this is aimed at building this long-term foundation for Black communities to heal. Um, What does an interim process look like in the nuts and bolts while the community is healing from historic racism and uh, violence by law enforcement. I I mean, is this a a situation where we go from a police force of close to 10,000 to no officers? Or is there a step down process in your mind that 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 will fulfill your goals for justice? Sure. So I'm going to draw inspiration from our young people. So one of the great victories that we've had over the last couple of weeks um, was LAUSD students um, from Students Deserve and from the Black Lives Matter Youth Vanguard demanding an end to police in their schools. And they wanted, you know, the school police to be cut completely. What they won was a 35% cut to L.A. school police and the resignation of the uh, L.A. USD school police chief. We thought that that was just tremendous. 
And then when we gathered for our annual, uh, our annual, our weekly protest. <laughs> Much more than annual. <laughs> yeah, yeah, far more than annual. Every Wednesday, we're outside of Jackie Lacey's office. Um, we gathered outside of Jackie Lacey's office and then marched to the front of City Hall. And these young people, the oldest of whom is 16 years old, stood up, they looked at each other, and they said, we want to thank each other for our victory, <laughs> right? And then they said, um, 35% is good, but it's not enough. We're going to keep fighting because we want all of it. We want all of it. All of that money should go to nurses and librarians and counselors and psychiatric social workers. And this is what our young people who ranged in age from 10 years old to 16 years old were saying. So we're drawing inspiration from them. We know that, um, of course, George Floyd, his murder absolutely um, gave new power and life and um, resonance to what we've been saying for years. But this effort to reimagine public safety and move away from seeing police as the answer to safety in this city and in this country um, began for Black Lives Matter many years ago, but also goes back to the work of previous freedom fighters, beginning with those who were trying to end the system of slave catching from which policing hails. Mm. And I just want to have Pete White uh, jump in on this because uh, when we talk about community safety, uh, of course, um, you know, when you uh, factor in what the police unions are saying and LAPD Chief Moore, we have news today um, that Moore, uh, uh, Chief Moore is reporting that uh, there is a rise in in murders so far this year um, compared to the same period for last year, a 14 percent rise. Of course, the pandemic, no doubt, plays a role in this rise. But the reason I'm bringing it up is because there is messaging uh, from the LAPPL, the Los Angeles Police Protective, Protective League, the union that represents uniformed police officers, And I'm going to read Robert Harris's uh, uh, quote here in ABC7. Um, He says, now is not the time to be cutting budgets and taking a reactionary approach to these type of things because we're just going to see these crime rates increase. We're going to continue to see people lose their lives. Um, uh, Pete White, how does a movement to reimagine community safety uh, battle messaging that is very effective, that uh, plays on, I think, fears that people have that they or their families may be uh, in danger if there are fewer officers with guns on their streets. Yeah, I think, though, I think we have to capture this as a very different moment. Yes, this is a bad rerun. Um, We could have, and everyone should know, that the police department is going to roll out their fear-based anti-Black rhetoric in hopes of driving people back inside. Uh, The reality, though, is it has not stopped people from demanding more. When you talk about the next steps, there's a couple of next steps, right? What's actually happening in the streets now is power is being built, right? Electoral engagement is happening, right? The demands from not just Black people, but from people of all races and colors and hues are sort of targeting the same idea that we have got to reallocate this idea of uh, reinvest those resources that have been used 
to uh, hold up this fear-based narrative need to be destroyed. And so that's where we are now. The next step for real um, is while we're talking about $150 million, $150 million, though, does not begin to tear at the infrastructure or the systems that allows this policing rhetoric to stand. And so just, just as we're pushing a campaign on the county side that we now going, we're going to move to the budget, uh, excuse me, we're going to move to the ballot um, to get nearly a billion dollars of county money um, to go towards community. The yeah, we talked about that charter in- amendment. I just want to note, uh, Mr. White, we we talked about that char- charter amendment yesterday with Supervisors Kuehl, uh and Barger about the vote to uh, draft the language to get a charter amendment on the county uh, voters ballot in, in November to set a floor of 10 percent of the general fund in the county to be spent on community programs and alternatives to uh, incarceration. And so, uh, you know, just when you bring that up, just know our audience, uh, uh, if they were listening, they're they're aware of that and that there are a couple more votes to actually place it on the ballot. But that's something that's percolating. Uh, sorry, go ahead. And so efforts like these are produced by folks being in the streets. Efforts like these are produced by our Western saying 150 million. Yep, that's on the city side. Now let's go to the county side and go after a billion. I think people are smart enough to know now Libby, um, the LAPD's playbook. Um, From our vantage point, from the asphalt, people are ready for a whole lot more. And folks are not going to back down until our vision of public safety is realized, realized in the budget, realized in the values and the social norms of Los Angeles. Alex Vitale, author of The End of Policing, what does the research tell us about uh, crime and policing and community safety? Um, Do more police officers with guns make the community safer? Well, there's certainly no simple connection here. You know, there's no correlation between the number of police and crime rates. There's no connection between how they're deployed and crime rates. We have a few studies that show that, you know, if you flood a neighborhood with police on every street corner, you can see, you know, a small temporary downtrend in crime. But overall, even when we see slight improvements from policing, it comes at a huge social cost a cost in terms of lost opportunities about how that money could be spent better, but also the cost of criminalization on those criminalized, on their families, and and really the disruptive effect it has on whole communities. So this, this movement is really saying we want an opportunity to explore other ways of producing safety that doesn't come with all those collateral costs. I'm up against a break. We're going to be back with our panel in just a minute here. I'm Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle talking to activists, academics, um, and uh, uh, Councilmember Herb Wesson about the future of policy changes to reimagine community uh, safety in L.A. and defund the police. Back in one minute on KPCC. Libby Denkman in for Larry Mantle on Air Talk. Thank you so much for being a part of the conversation to all of our panelists. Dr. Melina Abdullah with Black Lives Matter LA, Pete White with LA Community Action Network, and Alex Vitale, uh, the author of The End of Policing. Councilmember Herb Wesson is also on the line. And uh, 
what can uh, the constituents uh, and the, the folks that live here in Los Angeles expect in terms of concrete changes? How soon could, for example, when they call 911, uh, a mental health specialist respond instead of an armed police officer? Well, I think we have to do a lot of uh, uh, work. I don't think it's going to take a long time, but we've got to do a lot of uh, work right now because I think the key is that when we make this move, which I believe can be done with some haste, we've got to succeed. And so that's why we all have to work together. We need to bring in folk from uh, the mental health sector so that we can get their recommendations and suggestions and then we move forward on it so i i you know i'm i i see a pathway to get this done it's just like when i talk to melina when i talk to pete they know how i feel that we've got to do this we've got to do this right this is the beginning it's not the end we should start with reforming the criminal justice system but we need to move into the health system which the coronavirus has highlighted that communities of color are treated differently and an education system so but this is this is this is the tip. This is where we start with criminal justice reform. And I'm uh, again, I just see a pathway to success. And just to quickly talk about the uh, uh, increase in murders and some of the messages. Yes, briefly. Yeah. What's your response to yeah, that? Is that by reimagining police and putting in place some kind of uh, uh, mental health response teams, I don't think will have an effect whatsoever on murders and things of that nature. And so we, we've got to be careful that people don't combine all of these uh, messages. So because I don't think that by by being more proactive, by bringing in individuals that are experts and know how to t- talk to people when they're going through crises and things of that nature. I don't know what effect that that would have on LAPD going out trying to catch a murderer. Uh, I want to bring in Melina Abdullah just for a final thought here, because we're seeing public opinion on Black Lives Matter and your organization's goals really changing so rapidly and the recognition of institutional racism and uh, law enforcement's uh, uh, biased policing. And and all of these issues have really uh, risen in the national consciousness. Um, And uh, I think the role of the media needs to be examined. Uh, Reporter Wes Lowry, who was on the ground in Ferguson, uh, you know, he tweeted about this moment, kind of calling out especially white gays in the media He says black Americans have said since the inception of American policing, as we know it, that the police harass and harm them while also not protecting them. This is extremely mainstream black American ideology about policing. Now, of course, uh, you know, end quote, that that hasn't been the norm and the the viewpoint in so much of historic uh, conversations about this in the in the uh, media. Do you think that this is a genuine reckoning with this centering of a white gaze in this uh, in this space and, and community safety. Um, what do you make of this moment where people's opinions are really changing on these issues? Well, we have to take full advantage of this moment. So people have found it much easier in this moment to say Black Lives Matter, but in the words of um, one of my dearest comrades and 
brothers, uh, Kendrick Sampson, we need them to prove and make Black Lives Matter. And so you can say Black Lives Matter, but we need you to be in this work alongside us. We need everyone to be willing to support the work that is transformative, that doesn't just seek to reform. And we can't go back into the house in this moment. We have to stay in the streets, continue to organize, um, continue to make inroads in policy where we can, but also cause that good trouble that John Lewis, who we opened the show with, um, called us, called on us to do. Wow, you brought that full circle. That was uh, uh, amazing. Thank you, Dr. Abdullah. Thank you so much for joining us. Pete White, any final thought here um, on the changing national consciousness and the work to come? You have about a minute. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, just like my sister from another, Mr. Uh, Melina Abdullah just said, it is just time to keep people engaged. And so if you're in Los Angeles, find People's Budget LA. And just know that this movement is more than just the voices of Melina Abdullah and Pete White on KPCC this morning. It is comprised of so many committed Angelinos who, in the face of uncertainty, ran toward the fire and not away, right? And so what we're saying is stay in the streets, stay in the conversation, let's learn together, And let's create a Los Angeles that we can all be proud of. Thank you, Pete White with L.A. Community Action Network, Melina Abdullah with Black Lives Matter L.A., and a professor at Cal State L.A., Herb Wesson, Los Angeles City Council member, and Alex Vitale, author of The End of Policing. I appreciate everyone for joining me for this conversation today and everyone who listened and provided feedback. I'm Libby Denkman, in for Larry Mantle. More Air Talk coming up next. Thanks for sticking with us on AirTalk on 89.3 KBCC while Larry is away. Well, California's longest serving governor, Jerry Brown, was termed out of office last January, but the impact he left on the state is still with us. Brown was often ahead of his time and vocal about issues from the Vietnam War. People always say money. Give us more resources. Give us more planning, more experts. Well, I would only cite the Vietnam War. The other side had less resources, less planning, less experts, less PhDs, and they won. To climate change. A lot of you people are going to be alive. And you're going to be alive in a horrible uh, situation that you're going to see mass migrations, vector diseases, forest fires, uh, Southern California burning up. That's real, guys. That's what the scientists of the world are saying. So I'm not here about some cockamamie legacy that people talk about. This isn't for me. I'm going to be dead. It's for you. It's for you, and it's damn real. Woo, from one uh, audio clip to the next, we just jumped something like 28 years. Same governor, uh, different decades. Author and journalist Jim Newton has written a sweeping biography of the 34th and 39th governor of the Golden State. And he joins me to talk about what Brown achieved and give us some insight into someone I think it's fair to say uh, can be an enigmatic public figure. And uh, Jim Newton is here. I'm so uh, grateful to have you, uh, Mr. Newton. You're the author of Man of Tomorrow, The Relentless Life of Jerry Brown, also a lecturer of public policy at UCLA, founder and editor-in-chief of Blueprint, which is a UCLA magazine addressing the policy challenges facing California and L.A. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for being on AirTalk. 
Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and uh, and very much appreciate your interest in the book. So thank you very much. I devoured it. It came out uh, uh, earlier this year when it was really uh, a very tumultuous time, obviously still going on with the pandemic. Um, uh, in my moments, spare moments, I, I read it cover to cover and it really provided this primer um, on not just Jerry Brown's life, but uh, politics and how it's evolved in California over the years. And um, it's a wonderful read. So again, Man of Tomorrow, The Relentless Life of Jerry Brown is the book. And I want to first kind of go chronologically because, uh, you know, starting at the beginning, Jerry Brown is the son, of course, of Democratic Governor Pat Brown, who led the state for two terms starting in 1958. But far from planning to follow in his father's footsteps, Jerry Brown was studying to be a priest, right, when his dad was sworn into office. When and how does the pivot come to pursue public office? Uh, well, first of all, you're absolutely right. And I think the study of the priesthood was in some ways a reaction, to a negative reaction to his father's experience. He, Jerry Brown was seeking something very different than, as he described it, uh, the sort of ephemeral world of politics. He was interested in pursuing really deeper questions, questions of spirituality. Um, he would tell you, if you asked him when the light shone uh, or lit up for him on, um, on a career in politics, he recalls uh, a day when he was at the governor's mansion studying for the bar after having graduated from law school um, and after having left the study of the seminary and the study of the priesthood, where he overheard his father um, and Jess Unruh uh, arguing about uh, who should be the Democratic nominee for governor in California uh, during Pat's uh, second term. Um, and, uh, and for Jerry Brown, he was awed in some ways by the, the, the import of the conversation that he was overhearing. And he, he uh, identifies that as the moment that he really set out for career in politics. And notably, that's well into his father's career in politics. And as I say, when he's already a graduate of law school. So he's, uh, he, he, this wasn't something that bit him at a very young age. And Jess Unruh, just for folks who are maybe newer to California, just a giant in the California legislature and really shaped democratic politics for a long time. Um, so, you know, as you're looking at that that pivot to uh, politics, he gets a law degree at Yale. He wins a seat on the Los Angeles Community College Board of Trustees in 1969, then becomes secretary of state the next year. And by 1974, I mean, less than 10 years since he got his law degree, um, he's elected governor. That's really a rocket ship he's on. Um, and of course, it has a lot to do with his name and name recognition and, and infrastructure uh, for him to run for office. Uh, was he ready as a young man, as a really deep thinker, but maybe not a young man who had so much experience in the real world? Uh, was he ready to be the kind of governor that he aspired to be? Uh, it's an excellent question. Uh, I mean, uh, in a sense, maybe nobody is ever completely ready uh, for the governorship or the presidency or any a big executive office. Uh, and in that sense, he was sort of typically probably not ready. Uh, he was younger than most, obviously. And I, I think it's safe to say that the Community College Board was not going to contain Jared Brown for very long. Um, so. So, uh, so yes, he went straight from, as you, you just recounted the history, um, what he skipped on the way to the governorship that most governors, not all, but most governors would have is some experience in local office. Um, and it's really only in the second governorship and in the strange arc of Jerry Brown's career that he returns, having then been mayor of Oakland, and we can talk about that more uh, in a minute, I'm sure, but um, the... Uh, 
so in that sense, I think sort of not ready in the sense that he didn't have the experience of really seeing government services play out on the ground. Um, in another sense, though, uh, very much ready, right? I mean, he'd grown up, he'd seen his father's politics, he had uh, been a close observer of the governorship, as close as one can be, really, as I say, studying for the bar in the governor's mansion. Um, uh, and, and he had had this other kind of deeper dive into spiritual and intellectual experience that came to serve him very well, but I would say unorthodox credentials uh, for someone seeking and holding the governorship. I mean, theory and theology certainly has a, a really strong base, and he's somebody who can, you know, quote the Bible or uh, uh, Zen Buddhism with fluency. But at that point in his life, as a man in his 30s, um, you, you're saying that he didn't really have that uh, concrete, you know, how government actually impacts people's lives and, and how how it works on the ground uh, background. And I'm curious because he uh, was so different than his father, Pat Brown. He was Pat Brown was more of a backslapping kind of politician, loved the fundraising and the social aspects of it and the the connections with people. And, and Jerry Brown being such a, a cerebral type of person and politician, um, you know, was that evident when Jerry Brown took office that he was just going to be this very different kind of governor from his father? Uh, very much so. Uh, to the point that I think some people really see or saw his first term or first terms as a reaction in some ways to his father. He kept his father, his father who was alive uh, for those terms. Um, he kept his father at arm's length. Uh, his father was not a close advisor to him uh, in those early terms. And, you know, his father, his father is a, a recognizable type of, of political figure of that period, a New Deal liberal Catholic Democrat, um, tax and spend liberal, if you will, uh, big projects, big ideas, growth. Um, you know, Jerry Brown, if there were a mantra that were that was associated with him in the early terms, it would be small is beautiful. Uh, hard to imagine a slogan more at odds with Pat Brown's approach to government than Jerry Brown's in those ter- in those terms. Um, now, uh, so and, and, and just to explain that, I mean, you're you're talking about uh, you know Pat Brown being the, the governor who built big freeways and uh, created the water diversion project that brought water down to Southern California and you know built up the UC system. These grandiose big projects that left his footprint on the the state, no doubt, in a really physical way, uh, whereas uh, especially in the first term, uh, Jerry, is, Jerry Brown is looking at uh, being a governor in a, in a really different pattern. Can you can you talk a little bit about what that small is beautiful mantra uh, meant in his first term? Yeah, and I, and I think that that's it's you've put your finger on something important, which is is a different time. Um, Jerry Brown took office at a time when when the the imperatives were not about just growth and physical structures, uh, as you correctly pointed out, that are associated with his father. Um, Jerry Brown uh, came uh, as with uh, on the heels of Vietnam War, Watergate, uh, the environmental movement uh, was gaining steam, um, all of which led him to a, a very different philosophical approach to the government. And and I, I think, as I started to say, I think some people have tended to ascribe that to some sort of sort of psychological reaction to his father. I think that's selling it short. Uh, there may be some elements of that in uh, his style of governance and a rejection of his father's style. But at the same time, I think the challenges were notably different. 
uh, in the 1970s than they had been uh, for his father in the 50s and 60s. And he responded to different challenges um, and, and he came up with a different uh, approach to government as a result. I feel like if it was a truly uh, psychological reaction and, and nothing more, uh, a Jerry Brown would not have even gone into politics. Right. I mean, because he was he was uh, he's always going to be linked with his father in that way. So if you were, you know, having some kind of a fixation on, uh, you know, being different from your dad, it, it, it probably would have been a different career path for you. Um, so, you know, during his governorship, 1976, he runs for president for the first time, first of three times, again, uh, very young to, to run for president. What what kind of platform is he running at that point and where is his head at? Because you had extensive interviews with him and reflections over the years that you spent uh, researching and writing this book. Yeah, I mean, 1976 is of the three runs for the presidency, I think the one that I find most interesting. Um, it's the one he probably had the best chance of winning. Um, he entered and, and really doomed himself mainly by entering it very late. Uh, by the time he got into the race, uh, New Hampshire was already uh, said and done. Um, early primaries had already taken place. Once he got in, he did very well. He started with Maryland. He won the Maryland primary. And he won uh, or finished in the top two of every primary he entered after that. Um, uh, you know, he was a fresh face. His, his notion was that he was going to bring a dynamic, young, new ideas about politics, a set of new ideas about politics uh, uh, into the national sphere, just as he had done in California. Um, he was, uh, as I say, obviously very young. He was handsome. Uh, he was single. He was a, an exotic character. Um, and as I said, did very well, but he ran a, a disorganized campaign, a campaign that started late uh, and ultimately just couldn't prevail against Jimmy Carter. I know it but seems frivolous. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and again, Jimmy Carter, uh, obviously uh, destined to go on to win the nomination and then the, the presidency. Um, I know it seems frivolous, but you mentioned him being single. And I was seeing that coming back again and again in your book, kind of reflecting on his alternative uh uh, personal life while he was running for office, because at the time, as a, uh, a a white male politician, to not have a wife and you know two point five kids at home, uh, that was a different model, right? And he seemed to actually take seriously that that might have impacted his uh, electoral prospects. Yeah, he said to me, uh, sort of wistfully, uh, in one of our interviews, he said, you know, if I'd had a, if I'd been married and lived in the governor's mansion, I might have been president. And I think he's right about that. I think there was, but part of what made him novel and interesting to many people also made him sort of a fringe, I think, to certain people. And, and, and by the way, it's hard to remember this now because it's a long time ago and it feels like a different era, and it was. But California seemed very much more fringe to a lot of people in those days. Now, now California seems prescient and out front on issues. Then, I think for a lot of people, it, it seemed kooky uh, and unreliable. And the fact that, that Brown was unmarried, the fact that he, he, he had famously refused to live in the governor's mansion, he didn't ride in a government limo, he had a Plymouth, uh, he, you know, he slept on a mattress on a floor. All those things, I think, for some people were attractive and for some people were kind of repellent. Uh, and, and it may have cost him politically. Yeah, he slept uh, on, on a mattress and a floor in, in like a, a small apartment, as you said, and, um, you know, sort of cultivated, maybe not uh, intentionally, but he had this image as a, a bachelor and sort of just a, a living this very a different lifestyle. I, I 
think that, you know, the fact that he he reflected on that uh, is really interesting. And again, a great part of the book uh, that we're talking about right now. Jim Newton uh, is here with me, author of several books, and his latest is The Man of Tomorrow, The Re- Relentless Life of Jerry Brown. I read it cover to cover uh, in between uh, COVID uh, craziness, and it's really a, a great dive into Jerry Brown as a person, but also looking at the way he impacted California politics and the way the state has changed over the years. Uh, I'm Libby Dankman in for Larry Mantle. Uh, Moving on, we're looking at, uh, you know, 1982. He's uh, kind of getting done with his run for or his uh, time in office as governor. Um, he he loses a, a Senate seat to Pete Wilson, who at the time was a Republican uh, from uh, from San Diego. And Pete Wilson, of course, is, it goes on to become governor. Um, what is Jerry Brown left with at that point? I mean, he has been governor for two terms. Uh, does he feel at that point that he has uh, done accomplished what he wanted to in government? Well, the fact that he ran for the Senate lost, I think, suggests no, uh, that he wanted more. Um, I think by the time after having lost that race, I think he was tired. Um, He sort of publicly said farewell to California. He felt that California had gone sort of tired of him and he he was just worn out. Um, He did uh, notably, as he even as he was leaving office, promised to come back. And so he he did warn people that he wasn't done completely. but that he then embarked on a long period of reflection, um, most of it out of the public eye, um, uh, thinking about uh, questions deeply, uh, learning Spanish, studying Zen Buddhism, uh, working for a time with Mother Teresa, uh, and then eventually found his way back. And I think it's in the second. I mean, one of the things that was fascinating, has always fascinated me, and I think most people who look at Brown is you have this opportunity to see him at two very different stages of his life in the same office, uh, and mm-hmm. and how different that is. And I think it's that it's clearly that period in between that that helps explain his different performance in the in the third and fourth terms from the first and second. Mm. We're going to talk about that comeback uh, just after a quick break. Again, Jim Newton author of Man of Tomorrow, The Relentless Life of Jerry Brown. I'm Libby Denkman, in for Larry Mantle. Uh, and we're just going to address, I think there's a little bit of a skip in uh, in Jim's Skype line, so we're going to try to get some technical stuff worked out over this break. Um, really enjoying the conversation so far. Stick with me back in one minute. We're talking about Jerry Brown, the once and future governor, at least where we left off in his life. Uh, Jim Newton, author of Man of Tomorrow, The Relentless Life of Jerry Brown, is walking us through that. And his uh, that word legacy, which Jerry Brown hated, his life and his legacy in the state. And of course, uh, as you said, uh, Jim, uh, before the break, he's gone away. He lives in Japan for a short time. He is thinking, reading, doing a lot of different things. And uh, he begins a political comeback in 89, if I'm not uh, mistaken, when he uh, runs and wins the chairmanship of the Democratic Party for the state. Not the obvious fit for a guy like Jerry Brown, who does not love the retail politics, the backslapping that is that his dad liked, right? 
Exactly. I must say, of, of all the offices he's held, and then in a strange order in which he's held them, the one that stands out as the least a good fit for him, I would say, is probably chairman of the Democratic Party. It's a lot about raising money and drawing attention to other candidates, and none of which really play to his strength. And, and unsurprisingly, he didn't like it very much. And then there's a, a false start with another Senate run, and then uh, the a presidential bid in uh, 1992. 91 and 92, which is his third and final. And I'm going to play a clip that, of course, we've all heard a million times, but I I still think it's um, pretty remarkable to see these two figures meeting on stage and having this clash. Um, You know, Jerry Brown is meeting this uh, governor from Arkansas who's running for the Democratic nomination, Bill Clinton, and they are uh, having a dispute, I think, over um, Hillary Clinton allegedly pushing uh, uh, state business or, or Bill Clinton pushing state business to her law firm at the time. Is that right? Uh, 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 Jim, I know that you know the, the uh, exchange I'm going to play. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for jumping on my wife. You're not worth being on the same platform I'll tell as you wife. something, Mr. Clinton. Now, Don't try to escape it. Ralph Nader I called me this afternoon. He read me the article from the Washington Post. Does that make it I true? was shocked by it. I was shocked I by it because I don't think someone hey, in government time. should be funneling money. Governor, Brown, well, nice I know. Governor Clinton, you were poking in your finger at him. He well, poked it back. It's your turn, Governor Jerry Clinton. comes Go here ahead. with his family wealth and his $1,500 suit and makes a lying accusation about my wife. It's I never, Washington I Post. never, that doesn't you, make you, it true. Yeah, so uh, just for context, Jim, that was uh, controversy over business with Hillary Clinton's law firm, right? Right, the Rose Hill law firm, exactly. Yeah, so... Uh, I mean, the the last bid uh, has that famous moment, but uh, uh, not really as as promising as a previous runs for the presidency. Am I reading that correctly? It's absolutely. Um, yeah, not not a high watermark uh, of American politics right there. Um, uh, they did have some better. There's actually a really fascinating uh, and much more enlightening debate uh, later in that campaign where he and Bill Clinton uh, actually, on the Phil Donahue show, of all things, uh, where Donahue just turned the, the an empty studio over the two of them, and they just talked. Um, and that's a much more uh, productive uh, conversation. This this is acrimony, obviously, and Jerry can can swing too. You know, I mean, he's we. I, I spent a lot of time in the book talking about him in terms of his intellectual exploration and his uh, theological spiritual exploration. But he's a street fighter too, and you, you definitely hear it in that clip. Yeah, you talk about that Donahue show uh, really rapturously in the book, and it, it strikes me as an old political reporter such as yourself, um, not old in age, but, you know, somebody who's who's a, a veteran of uh, covering politics in California. Um, do you wish that more coverage kind of got out of the way in that manner where you just had two politicians on uh, sitting at a table and unrefereed just spoke to each other about the issues for the entire show. I mean, I've never seen anything like that in the modern era. Uh, nor have I. Uh, and that's probably why I do write about it somewhat rapturously, as you say. Uh, I mean, I, it's, um, you, it's a really interesting clip. I'm sure, Ed, I'm sure it's available on YouTube um, and people should just look it up. Uh, it's uh, partly because it's clear from the introductions that the candidates really were not aware at how unstructured, or we're not aware of how unstructured it would be. So Donahue just introduces the two of them and then sits back and there's no audience uh, and the two of them would just talk. And I, I, what I really was really struck by, I've watched it many times now, of course, um, is it brought out a kind of civility uh, in the two of them. Um, 
that in contrast to the to what we just heard in a more structured debate where they really were at each other, uh, the the challenge of just speaking to each other and listening to each other seemed to really bring out the best in them. Um, and they are two, you know, they're two very different people, Jerry Brown and Bill Clinton. Uh, but they also uh, really gravitate to the things that bring them together. They each have interesting relationships with their fathers. They're each very interested in health care. They're each interested in issues of poverty um, and politics and all of the, all of the above. Uh, and they, they just talked about it in a way that I really, uh, I think many people would find illuminating and, and reassuring, too. It feels less about winning points and more about trying to figure out problems. And you don't have uh, us reporters sticking our noses in and trying to get a headline for our next article. I mean, you have, you know, two people kind of grappling with issues. Um, I don't know if it would if it would work in practice today, but I I would certainly love to try Uh, moving on to the next chapter for Jerry Brown as he is uh, making this uh, foray back into public life, back into elected office. He takes time and he is a radio talk show host. Who would ever have thunk uh, the politician who I would probably least expect to want to fill airtime for hours on end? Um, Jerry Brown becomes a, a radio talk show host and then uh, starts a nonprofit in Oakland and, uh, you know, becomes mayor of Oakland in 1998. How did he come to run for mayor and kind of target that as the the right office for him to make his comeback? Um, Did he have historic roots or any kind of connection to Oakland, or was it more opportunism? A little bit of all of that, I would say. Uh, I mean, he yes, he did have a connection to Oakland at that point. He hosted uh, his We the People operation was based uh, in Oakland, um, and he had the radio show was based there. Um, so before he ran uh, for mayor of Oakland, he had spent time there. Um, and yes, he was also looking for an opportunity to get back into politics. Uh, he and I talked about this at some length. Uh, you know, he'd already uh, already had roots in San Francisco. L.A. is such a daunting uh, media market, and he was really uh, an outsider here, even though he had lived here for some time. Uh, Oakland was attractive, I think, demographically. It was interesting to run a city that was a uh, heavily minority city um, and challenging. Uh, it, had, it had real problems, um, and there was a, a place uh, opening for, uh, for him to run, and he took it. And he uh, was the the Oakland mayor and, uh, you know, kind of vaulted back onto at least the statewide conversation uh, in that office. Are there any lasting uh, policy accomplishments or anything in Oakland that you could point to that Jerry Brown uh, helped fix or uh, uh, reading your book? It seemed like a a mixed legacy there as as the mayor. Yes. uh, I mean, a a few things. Yes, he was a, a vocal proponent of charter schools uh, in Oakland, helped found a military academy, of all things. Um, uh, crime did uh, decline. He was focused on policing. Uh, downtown redevelopment and uh, growth were uh, prime issues that was he was generally successful with, although toward the end, uh, the economy uh, sort of squeezed that. I think in some ways the bigger impact of his Oakland period is on him, um, as we said, we were starting to talk about at the very outset here, I mean, he had skipped by local government on his way to the governorship the first time. And so I think it's in Oakland that he began to really grapple with problems as problems of everyday life, political problems as problems of everyday life. So rather than environmentalists versus labor or conservatives versus liberals, it was as he said uh, in one of our interviews, it's about getting a Whole Foods uh, into the area, or it's about you know luring business, or or you know getting a development permit. Um, 
those are real tangible effects of government that he just hadn't experienced, really, because of the odd way that his career had unfolded. And so I think it made him a better governor. And I do think he made Oakland a better place. It was not an overwhelming success or an unambiguous success. Uh, but in some ways, it, its contribution to him uh, is at least as important as his contribution to it. He spends time after his mayorship uh, as attorney general and then is uh, runs successfully for governor uh, for a third term, non-consecutive term in 2006, Jerry Brown, the sequel. Um, and, you know, some of the policy uh, decisions really early on, I think, that stick out, I guess this kind of overlapped his time as attorney general and as governor, um, was his decision not to defend Proposition 8, right? The right. Uh, law in California outlawing gay marriage. Can you talk about his decision on that? Because he is, after all, a devout Catholic. Yes. Uh, I mean, I think, and he took a lot of grief uh, for this. There, It's it's a, a close call, frankly, uh, whether the attorney general has the legal obligation to defend a California initiative that the attorney general believes violates a constitutional right. So the, the, the question with Prop uh, 8 was, uh, it had been passed by the voters uh, and therefore was presumably the law of California. It had also been held to violate the equal protection rights uh, under the federal constitution of gays uh, in California, gays and lesbians. Um, and so he opted not to defend it. Um, and that was important in the way in the legal course uh, of the of the initiative as it wound its way to the Supreme Court. Ultimately, uh, the Supreme Court uh, overruled uh, the uh, or, or ruled in favor of uh, gay marriage uh, by dismissing the case for a lack of standing because of Jerry Brown's decision not to defend it. And then the court went on later to, to protect gay marriage as a, a constitutional right under equal protection. It didn't reach that conclusion in this case, but Brown's decision not to defend it profoundly affected the course of it as it worked its way through the federal system. Mm. I don't think we can uh, overstate the tumultuous uh, political time that uh, elapsed between his first governorship and his second. I mean, Jerry Brown leaves office, takes some time away, eventually kind of works his way up through different um, statewide and local offices to get back to the governorship. But meanwhile, we're talking about a Pete Wilson governorship that has Prop 187 passed and the uh, vitriol and uh, fear-mongering about immigrants and Latinos in this state that is stirred up and then leaves this lasting impact on the Republican Party. We have a budget crisis. Um, You know, Gray Davis is recalled. And a lot of that budget crisis is tied to Proposition 13, the property tax initiative that was actually passed while Jerry Brown was governor the first time. But of course, that that is impacting then the way that future governors are uh, able to manage the budget and future legislatures Uh, coming back. uh, You know, how different was California as a state, as a as a political entity to govern from when he was first in office? Uh, well, yes, very different. Um, and uh, for some of the reasons you just uh, mentioned, um, I think the biggest difference uh, in the challenges facing Jerry Brown upon his return to office in the third term compared to his entry into the governorship in the first term is that he inherited a relatively stable state and economy from Ronald Reagan uh, when he was elected the first time in 1974. Uh, that is not the case uh, when he returned. California was in 
a deep economic uh, crisis. Um, it was often com- or was being compared to Greece or being with the question of whether a state could declare bankruptcy was on the table. Um, it was considered a failed state in some quarters. Um, and so uh, it was uh, broken. Um, and there was real question as to why anyone would want the governorship under those circumstances. Um, but he did want it. He wanted it back. And of course, he runs in this in this odd way of being both a fresh face and a seasoned hand uh, for many, maybe even most voters uh, in the in the governorship in the governor's race in 2010. He is probably their first introduction uh, to Jerry Brown. He'd been gone from the governorship for 28 years. Um, so uh, he managed he he his campaign combined elements of starting fresh uh, with deep experience. Uh, that's a rare combination to be able to pull off, um, uh, particularly in an election as consequential as a California governorship. And so uh, he was an unusual candidate, as he's always been, uh, but an especially unusual one that time. Yeah, I think I said earlier the the second or the third term was uh, 2006. Of course, it was the 2010 uh, campaign. Uh, you know, with all those things being different, of course, we are going to get to the fact that President Trump is elected in 2016. And that, of course, is a very different national context in which to govern, uh, you know, such a, a consequential state as California. Um, how and when did he become involved in the climate change issue that was such a passion for him in in the second term? And by the way, I just want to reintroduce my guest Jim Newton is the author of Man of Tomorrow, The Relentless Life of Jerry Brown, and he is also uh, editor-in-chief of Blueprint at UCLA, uh, the magazine addressing policy challenges facing California, lecturer of public policy at UCLA. Um, you know, Jim, how did he, how did Jerry Brown come to care so deeply about climate change? It is a, a natural outgrowth of a long um interest in and uh, fascination by uh, environmental issues generally. Um, One of the most uh, moving conversations, uh, I would say, that I had with Brown over the course of the years of interviewing him for this book was on in these areas. And the way he described it, and and we've talked about it since a couple of different times too, um, is that for him, uh, grappling with the gravity of environmental issues uh, is reminiscent, I think, of his explorations of God. Um, that these are the environment is not an issue that uh, that allows really for difference of opinion in a certain way. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you or I believe that carbon contributes to climate change. It either does or it doesn't, and it does. Um, and and therefore, it doesn't uh, suffer differences of opinion in the way that we could differ about abortion or the death penalty or tax increases or whatnot. The environment is real. Uh, and for him, I think, um, uh, addressing it, therefore, brings up questions of absolutes and what is humanity's responsibility in, in confrontation with or in, in appreciation of something that is absolute, that's unyielding. And so I think for him, it reaches him on a an intellectual level and on a spiritual level, as well as on a level of, of science and public policy. So it's that's the issues of the environment. No area of life has Jerry Brown had a greater 
or more significant impact, in, in my view, than when it comes to addressing environmental issues. And climate change is the biggest of all of those. Uh, but when he started, it was coastal protection or air pollution or acid rain. I mean, there's been a whole series of issues that have been of great importance along the way, but they have culminated in this deep um, and, and really resolved conviction to address the question of climate change. Mm. Jim Newton with UCLA, author of Man of Tomorrow, The Relentless Life of Jerry Brown. It's a really good read, especially um, in between all your uh, pressing pandemic uh, responsibilities, childcare, whatever else you're dealing with right now. Uh, I enjoyed the book very much, and we will have more with Jim coming up in just a minute. I'm Libby Denkman, in for Larry Mantle today on Air Talk. Back in a minute. situation that you're going to see mass migrations, vector diseases, forest fires, uh, Southern California burning up. That's real, guys. That's what the scientists of the world are saying. So I'm not here about some cockamamie legacy that people talk about. This isn't for me. I'm going to be dead. It's for you. It's for you, and it's damn real. That was former Governor Jerry Brown uh, making the case to extend California's cap-and-trade system in 2017. He arrived at the uh, state legislature to really put the final uh, screws to this deal and and pushing uh, the votes that he needed over the finish line. And Jim Newton, the author of Man of Tomorrow, The Relentless Life of Jerry Brown, a new biography coming out, uh, or it's been out uh, just for a couple months now. Um, Jim Newton, that passion that you heard in his voice, that really speaks to what you were saying about um, how much Brown cared about uh, climate change and how much it spoke to his concept of spirituality, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I, it's one of my favorite clips of him. Um, he does that all without notes. Uh, he came there to deliver remarks and immediately abandoned them for what you just heard. Um, uh, uh, no, I think no no issue grabs him by the throat uh, quite the way this one does. And you certainly hear it in that clip. And so what kind of work was he doing in his uh, final two terms in terms of leading on climate change when we had a a president elected in 2016, for example, who uh, continually denied the science behind it, said it was a Chinese hoax? Um, What did the Trump election do for Jerry Brown's fight to uh, push for uh, climate action? Well, in one sense, it made it much more difficult, clearly, um, in the sense that the federal government was no longer there as a supportive partner uh, in uh, trying to limit greenhouse gases and uh, limit emissions from uh, vehicles, which California has taken a leadership role on historically, um, uh, partly because of Jerry Brown and Mary Nichols at the Air Resources Board. Um, So in one sense, it denied Brown uh, and California the support of the federal government. Um, In another sense, it elevated Brown. Um, it made him the leading elected official in this country uh, addressing climate change. Um, California is so big, as is often said, the fifth largest economy in the world, um, that California policies are uh, on a par with or, or more important than those of many countries. Um, and so in that sense, Jerry Brown became not just a national leader on climate change, but an international leader because the White House was so conspicuously absent and, and to, the, to the degree that Trump played any role on climate change, it was a negative role. So uh, it allowed Brown uh, to stand out all the more, I think, on an international stage. And then at the same time, his 
his austerity philosophy about government, small is beautiful, not a phrase that you would associate with a Democrat, uh, especially a Democrat with such progressive views about climate. Um, he is working to get the budget back on track. As you said, he's, he inherits a really broken economy and a broken budget system in, in California. What's happening in those last two terms to uh, right the ship? Yes, Jerry Brown inherited a $26, 27000000000 billion shortfall uh, when he uh, took office in 2011. Um, he, against the advice and wisdom of many people around him and editorial boards, including uh, the Los Angeles Times editorial board, of which I was a member uh, at the time, uh, uh, which all of whom advised him not to uh, insist that any tax increase be submitted to voters. Uh, he instead promised that he would not raise taxes without a vote of the people. Uh, and then he delivered it. Uh, the people of California uh, voted in support of a higher income and sales taxes. Uh, that, combined with a generally strengthening economy and budget austerity, allowed Brown to leave office uh, with a, a budget uh, surplus of uh, some $20 billion. Now, the state of California has eaten through that pretty quickly in this, in this crisis. Uh, but it meant that California was prepared for this crisis um, in a way that few other uh, local or states, uh, local entities or states were. Um, it, this crisis exceeded, I think, uh, almost anybody's expectations for crisis, so it has not been enough. Um, but uh, Brown, through a combination of, of his own instinctive frugality uh, and a willingness to raise taxes uh, and a willingness to win a vote of the people, uh, left California in far better shape than he found it. I know you've uh, had at least a one forum I saw with Governor Brown since this pandemic began and since the budget crisis has hit the state of California. Um, did he comment to you? Has he spoken to you about what we're watching right now in terms of the, the rainy day fund that he so carefully built up um, in the face of deficits when he took office? Uh, what's happening to it now? Uh, maybe faster again than any of us could have imagined being depleted. Did he have a reaction to that? Yeah, I don't know about that specifically, although certainly, yes, it's a rainy day fund and it's a rainy day. Uh, so, I mean, I think in that sense, this is the time to use it. Uh, and I don't think he would disagree with that. He's been, uh, at least in my conversations with him, uh, supportive of, uh, of uh, Governor Newsom's response to this crisis. I haven't talked to him in a week or two, but um, uh, we are, by contrast, and unsurprisingly, he's been uh, sharply critical of uh, President Trump. Um, mainly for failing to respond more quickly um, to the early signs of the pandemic. Uh, I've heard Governor Brown uh, contrast the federal response here to South Korea and Taiwan, um, where much quicker, much more forceful action uh, to contain and trace and um, and uh, isolate uh, people who have been affected uh, uh, resulted in, in, you know, quick uh, and successful response uh, to the virus. And uh, he has pointedly drawn the contrast to that uh, between that and, and President Trump's, uh, what he regards as President Trump's failed response. Mm. Uh, so looking at some of the uh, question marks after he left office, the, the status of high-speed rail um, and the status of the Delta Tunnel project, um, what was his uh, hopes? What were his hopes when he was in office for those major projects? And uh, where are we with those? 
On the tunnels, um, Governor Newsom has supported conceptually the idea of a water conveyance system to uh, to bypass the Sacramento Bay Delta and bring water off the Sacramento River uh, and to Southern California. Um, he has disagreed with the proposal that was on the books when Jerry Brown left office, which was a two-tunnel system. He's instead proposed a one-tunnel system. Um, but I, uh, that feels to me like more an argument about the engineering than about the conceptual need for it. So I think it's probably safe to say that a very complicated project um, with a lot of constituencies. The Bay Area also gets water out of that project, so the Bay Area is involved in it in a way that it wasn't in previous uh, North to South conveyance uh, debates. Um, so there's a lot to be ironed out in there, but it, Governor Newsom's position doesn't strike me as that different from Governor Brown's. Uh, the train, different matter. Um, Governor Newsom announced uh, shortly after taking office that he didn't see a, a way looking forward for a train to connect uh, Los Angeles to San Francisco or Sacramento anytime in the foreseeable future and proposed instead to proceed with a scaled down piece of the project in the Central Valley. That then gave President Trump an opening to say, well, if that's not going to be the project, then we want our money back. That is to say the federal government wants its money back. That has created a whole other stir of questions as Gavin Newsom actually abandoning the long-term idea of the plan or just scaling it back with the hopes that ultimately it can be built out. That seems a little less clear to me. Yeah, it's pretty fuzzy. I, I We're just up against a, a time crunch here. So final question for you, Jim Newton, author of Man of Tomorrow, The Relentless Life of Jerry Brown. Uh, can you just give me the, like, the one-minute pitch of why people should read this book? What made you uh, drawn to the idea of writing about Jerry Brown? And then what did you learn through this process that you think people will just find really fascinating? I don't, I have never, I've spent my whole life covering uh, politics, most of it in California, and I have never met a person who uh, thinks more deeply um, or attempts to uh, draw bigger lessons uh, out of uh, spirituality and intellect and infuse them into politics than Jerry Brown. He's not always done that in ways that people would agree is, are successful, um, but I don't know anyone who aspires uh, to higher things uh, or who is more interesting. And he got in the arena. I mean, I, he was frustrating to read about at, uh, at some stages and fascinating and just a really complex person that you captured wonderfully. Jim Newton, author of Man of Tomorrow, The Relentless Life of Jerry Brown. Pick it up from Little Brown and Company. It's been out for a couple months and it's a good read, especially um, get your mind off some other stuff going on in the world right now. Thank you, Jim, for being here on AirTalk. And I'm Libby Dankman in for Larry Mantle for another uh, segment here coming up next, a podcast. Again, get your mind off uh, some of the less fun things in the world with a really fun and informative podcast out from our friends at Marketplace and Brains On. Back with that, Million Bazillion is the show in just a minute here on AirTalk. Hey there, I'm Libby Denkman, in for Larry Mantle. Uh, Larry has been out this week on vacation. And hey, parents, if your kid is home these days, like we all are, and disconnected from friends, classmates, teachers, and activities that they usually enjoy, you are probably looking for ways to feed their minds, keep them busy, and cheer them up during this really tough time. Well, I have a podcast for you. Our colleagues at Marketplace and the Brains on Kids podcast have a new show, and it is a total delight. It is called Million Bazillion. And now it's time for Asking Random Kids Not-So-Random Questions. If you had all the money in the world, 
What would you do? If I had all the money in the world, first I would fly my private jet to San Diego to my favorite taco place called the Taco Stand. I would give it to some foundations that help the world. I would give dogs from the shelter homes. Just buy my like normal things, and then I would just give the rest of the money to people. If I had all the money in the world. How to make a 100 feet tall robot? I would buy a football stadium. I would plant multiple forests. Then I would buy a hang glider. Buy some FIFA points and save the rest for later. I would be rich. Oh, I know this podcast is uh, aimed at kids, but that just makes my heart grow three sizes, and uh, I am loving it so far. Jed Kim is here, public radio journalist and host of Million Bazillion, the new podcast from Marketplace and Brains On. Jed Kim also uh, was a reporter here at KPCC back in the day. Thanks again, Jed, for coming on the show. Of course, you got it, Olivia. You know I love KPCC. You guys are home. You are part of the family, of course. <laughs> uh, so what can folks expect when they tune in to Million Bazillion? Well, we try to walk the line between being informative while also being uh, wildly entertaining to your children because you know, kids have a lot of curiosity and we want to feed that while also you know, sneaking in information like vegetables. Yeah, yeah, like hiding vegetables in like uh, <laughs> something that seems like macaroni and cheese. Uh, so why kids and money? You're teaching, uh, you know, kids uh, uh, lessons about money, but also answering their questions. Um, why now? Why is that important? Uh, and uh, why why the show? Well, basically because kids, they want to know about money. Like they're naturally curious about everything. And money is so incredibly important that it just makes sense that they'd want to know about that. Unfortunately, for a lot of families, money is really hard to talk about. Like there's stigma attached to it or we think it's not polite or we think they should be focused on other things. But those early years are so important for forming healthy habits in kids. And you know, Marketplace's stated mission is to raise the economic intelligence of the country. This podcast is it's like doubling down. It's an attempt to start that during listeners' formative years. Yeah, I mean, I think if I had been able to be uh, a million bazillion listener as a kid, maybe I would have been smarter about online shopping during the pandemic, uh, <laughs> during our current situation. Um, the first episode that I listened to as I was walking around my neighborhood yesterday uh, was really cool. It was answering a question from a kid, and it was about the history of money. Um, you know, who invented money or how was it invented? And I learned so much. It was totally fun. And the writing is just engaging and hilarious for all audiences. Um, what are some of the most fun tidbits you learned reporting uh, that episode about the history of money? I learned so much. The I think the thing that jumps out to me is just how money began. Like, I I went into this thinking one thing about money, that it was essentially a way to make bartering better um, and, and more efficient. But when we spoke to a professor, we learned that that's not actually the case. The Money was a tool to kind of 
help relationships, build relationships. And that just kind of like blew my mind. And it really shifted the way that I thought about money and our relation to it. And and part of that history is, is learning about then the shift to when money changed from that relational tool to what we know it is know it as today. Yeah. I mean, there's this moment in time when like handing a necklace to somebody is meant to remind them that they're like part of your in crowd or part of their of your tribe. And so they owe you a favor. Like it's not it's not currency as we know it today, but it's part of that evolution, which is just one of the things that I loved learning about when I was listening to Million Bazillion, uh, the new podcast. Jed Kim is with us, former KPCC reporter. He is the host of this new podcast, which is a partnership between Marketplace and Brains On, another great kids podcast uh, to check out, especially when your kids are, you know, disconnected from uh, learning opportunities. And, you know, we have about a, a minute and a half left here, Jed. I I mean, right now, this is probably the most important time to have uh, alternatives to uh, ways to learn, you know, tactile, auditory, however you learn. Um, It's a great time to be offering this podcast, right? Yeah. I mean, any, I'm a parent of an almost three-year-old and any chance to get like 20 minutes so that I can do dishes or laundry. (laughs) And thankfully, you know, this podcast is going to not only entertain, but also teach your kids something that they desperately need to know. Yeah, it's called Million Bazillion. Uh, Jed's child is uh, extremely cute, by the way. And uh, you can hear that real exhaustion, (laughs) though, in your voice in terms of the way parents are dealing with this pandemic. Thanks again, Jed, for talking about the new podcast and good luck with the show. Thanks. So Million Bazillion, you can get it on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. It is about teaching kids about money in a really fun and engaging way. And we're just trying to help, uh, you know, give you options if you're out there and you want uh, a fun thing for you to listen to or for uh, caregivers to offer for kids who are out of school right now. 89.3 KBCC. I'm Libby Denkman. Thanks so much for listening At noon with Fresh Air, hosted by Terry Gross. She's talking with Mary Trump, who has a new memoir about the Trump family. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening.